Would you remain standing as we honor God in his word? Our scripture reading is going to be found in Revelation chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, uh, you can turn there or follow on the screen behind me. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can pick one up from the seat back pocket in front of you as we continue our study. Now the third letter through the seven letters, a series entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you've got some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. That's the false teaching. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. And I want to thank you that your word truly breaks every chain. And I want to thank you for your word because it's through the channel of your word that we can hear your spirit. And we've invited you, spirit, to be here. And so I humbly ask now that as we pray, you would give us spiritual ears to hear what's written in your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said... Amen. Amen. You can have your seat. If you've got your Bible, you're going to want to be in Revelation chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 as well. You might want to take out your Can You Hear Me Now journal. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go through the letters that were written by our elders to our church, or you are utilizing it as a study tool for yourself, but it's a journal whereby we can become students of God's Word and then write down our notes and then study them throughout the course of the week as well. Attached with it, a reading plan if you're on our app, uh, so that you can read along the Scripture with us as we're reading through those churches. The title of today's message, A Faithful Witness. A faithful witness. We're in the third church, and this is the third of seven. We're in the church of Pergamum. Pergamum. Now, Pergamum is found in the Turkish city of Bergama, about 16 miles from the Asian Sea. And uh, its name basically has two meanings. The first of which, it means heights. And uh, as you can see from, uh, I believe, a picture that will go up behind me, it is located on the top of the mountains of Bergama. And so uh, you can kind of see out, this is the city, the actual ancient city of Pergamum, and you can see that it's on the heights of those hills. And basically, it's like a, it's like a modern world Mount Olympus. And what I mean is, on this Pergamum Mount, you will see that's the temple to Hadrian. Then you see the temple to uh, Dionysus. The temple just beyond is to Venus. Then there was another one to Zeus with a 150-foot 
put Zeus inside sitting down um, in one of the temples. In fact, it had five temples to Roman gods there on top of Pergamum. It was there on the heights. The other name, well, you got to break it down a little bit. The word per and the word gamum. The word per is where we get our word pervert. The word gamum is where we get our word marriage, a perverted marriage, a perverted marriage. Now, we're going to discover what that means in just a moment. It's amazing how this name is prophetic and how this church tried to marry the way of the world with the wonder of the word. And they tried to pervert the marriage of the world and the world coming together. And so we'll discover that in just a moment. But this Pergamum also was a modern-day Google. And what I mean is, it hosted the second largest library in the world. Now, I know we pull out our phone, and we simply just type in something to get information. Well, Pergamum had 200,000 volumes of written word. And so from all over the world, if you wanted to get some information, you traveled up to Pergamum. If you needed some direction... You traveled to Pergamum. If, if you wanted to have some kind of, well, kind of watch a movie, but in a first world modern sense, you'd go read one of the books and be taken away into some wonderland and have some emotional response. Or maybe you need some direction. In fact, a lot of people that were medically not well, the god Asclepius was also found here, and many of the volumes found in the library was the most up-to-date medical information that you could receive. And so modern-day Google, people would come from all over the world just to understand from the written word. Now, Pergamum was also a little bit like Las Vegas, right? We know Las Vegas to be sin city, right? It's, it's like what happens in Las Vegas kind of stays in Las Vegas, right? And we, we, we've called it traditionally in our nation sin city. Well, Pergamum was Satan city. Satan city. That's what Jesus names it. He names it Satan city. But I want you to see something, if you would. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. Christians were living there. Christians were living in Satan's city. And what I love about this is he doesn't tell them to leave the city. He doesn't tell them in the letter, you need to get out of there. He says, no, no, I know where you dwell. He doesn't move them. He speaks to them while they're living in the midst of Satan's city. He specifically commends one of them. His name was Antipas. Antipas. Tertullian, one of our early church fathers, he tells us the story about Antipas, and he tells us that Antipas refused to renounce his faith, and so much so, he was not going to go into the Trajan temple and worship Trajan. He was not going to go into the Dionysus uh, and, and worship Venus or Dionysus. He wasn't going to go worship Zeus. He made a decision, I'm going to stand for truth, and with that decision, it cost him his life. Antipas was a, a faithful witness. But it wasn't just Antipas. No, it was the whole church. The whole church, the Bible says, was holding fast to his name. Now we got to remember, Revelation is written to the Jewish person. And so we have to understand what this name means. Well, if I say Chet Lowe, I hope you think pastor. I hope you think Great guy. I hope you think good looking. I hope you think all these positive thoughts when you hear the title 
Chet Lowe. That's what I hope. I hope you don't think mean. I hope you don't think stingy. I hope you don't think greedy. But my title is Chet Lowe. But my name, according to a Jewish understanding, is what my title represents. It's my conduct. It's my character. It's my creed. And he says, you've hold fast to my name. So this would be the character. This would be the conduct. This would be the creed of Christ. And I love all the personal pronouns. My name, my faith, my faithful witness. Listen to all the personal pronouns there in verse 13. He says, you hold fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith. And Antipas was my faithful witnesses. My. He makes it personal. This is my faith. And I know you're surrounded by a lot of false faiths. But the only faith that makes any difference, the only faith that gets you to heaven, is my faith. And they were surrounded by a lot of false faiths. But they were also beginning to be, well, they were also beginning to, well, there were people that were coming in the church. And now it was not just a false faith that was happening outside the church where it's easy to recognize Hadrian's temple. No, now... There's something false that's happening within the church. Something's happening within the church? Well, if it's without and it's within, how then can I be a faithful witness? And that's our first point, being a faith-filled witness. Well, we know that faith, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, maybe you want to write it down. Romans 10, 17, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We hear what was written. Remember what the Spirit says. Those of you who have spiritual ears, he says, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But the only way that we would hear it is if we read it. And the word hear is that we perceive what we have read, what has been written. So how we become a faithful witness it's got to be very closely tied to what is written. No wonder, take a look at verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, circle this word, write. Because there's the essence of our faith. Write. This word's a powerful word. It means to be engraved in stone. Engraved in stone. You see, I'm sure the Jew is thinking when they read this word about the finger of God that wrote on the rock the Ten Commandments. And the writing of Scripture became very important at that point because if God wrote Scripture, then we need to write what God has done. We want to be just like God. But engraved in stone, oh, it has another meaning. I'll tell you something. This is a Sharpie marker. Now, if I walk up to one of these faithful ladies and I take this marker and I head towards their blouse, if I come over to here to Miss Kim and I'm going to do like this on this beautiful pink blouse and then I'm going to swipe it across, Doug over here, one of our elders, kind of just kind of nicks it like this. And he's going, you're really not going to do this, right? Because if you do this, what's going to happen? This is a permanent Sharpie marker. If you put permanent Sharpie marker on my clothes, my clothes are going to be ruined because I'm never going to get it out. It's permanent. That's why it's written. 
It's written with the finger of God in stone because it's permanent. The word of God doesn't change because of culture. It doesn't shift with the, 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 the ways of time. The word of God is just permanent. The word of God doesn't change because of the way we feel about it. It's a permanent word of God. We write signs. And the reason why we write signs is because if I'm having a party at my house, I want to give you the right directions to come to my house. So I'll put on a sign, an arrow that leads this way. And that arrow that I wrote is going to lead you the right way. We read things for emotional reasons. For example, when you get a written letter from the IRS, even when I say those three letters, some visceral response begins to happen inside of you. Written word affects us emotionally. Written word affects us emotionally. Oh, ladies, you're going to receive a Valentine's Day card from your loved one. Hint, 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 gentlemen. Hint, hint, hint. Because when they read that Valentine's card, they're going to smile. They're going to laugh. They're going to giggle. Their foot's going to pop. Something's going to happen where they'll have some emotional response because of what you wrote. Written word? Think of the volumes at Pergamum. Volumes you could learn from mentally you can change where you were ignorant in one respect and you become educated in another. Oh, spiritual. Spiritual words. Because when I read the law and I see that I'm only supposed to go 45 but the policeman pulls me over because I was going 60. It didn't happen. I'm just using it as an example. I have my Coast Hill sticker and I want to set a great example most of the time. And, and some of you need to do a little better job with your Coast Hill sticker, okay? I've seen you on the street. I've actually took a picture of one of you and sent it to, um, and you were doing something so wonderfully right because you know the law. You read the law. You understand the law. And because you understand it, you who were doing something right continue to do right. But if I get pulled over and the officer shows me the law, spiritually something's going to happen to me where I realize my wrong needs to become right because I read it. The written word. The written word is powerful. That's why I believe he describes himself as the word. Because he's powerful. I ask you to keep your finger. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to read this description of the word of God. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He announces himself as the double-edged sword. That's what he announces himself in Revelation 2. He's a double-edged sword, and now we understand why he says that. Take a look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, listen to the two-edged sword, division of soul and of spirit. In other words, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. He said it. Divide soul and spirit. Division of joints and marrow. So the things that you're holding on to. And the things that you think are foundational, he says, no, 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 it doesn't matter. I, I want to teach you what's foundational and what you should hold on to. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the word of God is a, a double-edged sword. That's what he says in Revelation 2. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Two-edged sword? The word of God's a two-edged sword? Oh, yeah. It's filled with truth. And the other side of the blade? Grace. It's filled with mercy. And the other side of the blade, justice. 
It's filled with words that will construct your faith, and it's filled with words that will destruct your flesh. It's a two-edged sword. And so while you can go from ignorant to knowledgeable, and emotionally you can go from convicted to inspired, in the same way it's because of the truth and the grace, the mercy and the justice, the construction and the destruction of the word of God that goes straight to the core of your being. It's why a couple of weeks ago a guy looks at me and says, "Uh, my wife must have called you. No, she really didn't call me. Well, what you said was exactly what we're dealing with at home. And I said, well, that's the Holy Spirit of God. And he's just putting the sword of the Spirit straight to the core of your heart. And he goes, well, I don't like it. (laughs) That's where he divides, soul and spirit. He's not concerned with how you feel about it. He wants to lead you directly, lead you directly. And so he says that this church, and I believe this church goes to hills, he says, you're holding fast. You're holding fast to my faith. Now, maybe you want to circle that word, holding, because it means become the master of. Become the master of. In other words, you have a master's degree in the Bible. He says you're holding fast. And I've always looked at a way, a simple way for us to become master degree level Christians. First, I want you to write it down. First is we marinate in the word of God. We marinate in it. And so we're reading it every single day. We've got our devotional life that's going on. And maybe you join our reading plan. So we're marinating in the Word of God. The next is we meditate on the Word of God. So what we've marinated in, now we're thinking about all day. So maybe we're in, we're in 2 Corinthians and we're getting ready to go to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And you're in the Word every single day. But now you're thinking about a Word like the Word we thought about last week. Set your minds on things that are above. It's a memorization opportunity. So I marinate, then I meditate. It's in my heart as I think about it. And now I'm hiding it in my heart as I memorize it. This is your devotions. This is your opportunity to be faithful by choosing to be in the Word of God. Everybody wants to be faithful. Nobody wants to be a loser. And the way that we can be faithful is to marinate, to meditate, And to memorize the word of God. Because I want to tell you something. When you're holding fast to the word of God. By marinating and meditating and and memorizing. When you're holding fast to the word of God. You're going to be able to hold up in the midst of trial. When you're holding fast. You're going to be holding up. It's just a truth. Realized by a family in our church. Have gone here for years. Last week. All of a sudden, a bacterial infection in their 18-year-old daughter's body became pneumonia. And within a matter of hours, it went from pneumonia to surgery to being intubated to wondering, God, what's going on with our 18-year-old daughter? And when I showed up on the scene, there was a peace that passes understanding. For years, they've been marinating in the Word. For years, they've been meditating on the Word. They've been memorizing the Word. And now in the midst of their situation, oh, because they had held fast, now they're able to hold up. They were faithful witnesses. But Jesus has got some concerns. Because life has a way to kind of corrupt our faithfulness. And he says, I've got a few concerns. And that's what he says there. He says, I've got a few concerns. I've got a few things that are against you there in verse 14. A few. A small number. 
But let me tell you about a small number. If you take an engineer and you tell him, can we just be off an inch and we'll build the bridge to the other side, he'll tell you or she'll tell you, listen, if you're off an inch here, by the time you get to the other side, you're going to be a mile from your target. Because it just takes a few things to move you a far way. That's all it does. So he says, i got to deal with a few things. we we got to deal with a few things because I want you to remain a faithful witness. I don't want you to follow the faithless foe. I want you to remain a faithful witness. I don't want you to follow that faithless foe. And Jesus knows his schemes. He knows what he's up to. I think you'll understand. You see, this church was holding so fast, just like this family, that when their trial came, they were able to hold up. And Jesus commends them for it, and he says, you guys are doing good. You even saw Antipas killed, and you held fast. So the enemy, he's looking at this persecution. And persecution is actually building this church. Persecution is actually helping this church. Persecution is actually making their faith stronger. So he comes up with a different method. Jesus knows. And instead of attacking them from external ways, now he goes inside and the devil wears Prada. Not really, but I mean, he may. I don't know. There was a movie. Come on. But he comes walking inside the church. He comes preaching a different doctrine. Oh, oh, it's not like, hey, there's no such thing as the virgin birth. He would never do that. No, it starts out really, really small. Just with a few things. Just a few things. Now, it's going to get to a place where it's much bigger than where he started. But the truth of the matter is Jesus says, uh-uh, I see what's happening. He's attacking from within. So Jesus comes against the faithless foe. Comes against. Because here's what's happening. There's a couple of people. They're standing behind the pulpit. They're preaching the doctrine of Balaam. We'll get to it in a moment. They're, they're preaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Small little compromises is what he's communicating. And they're right there in the middle of the, the stage preaching to the people. And Jesus said, wait a second. I don't know if you remember Revelation chapter 1. I'm the only one that's supposed to be in the middle. I'm the only one that's supposed to be in the midst. I'm the only one that's supposed to be the center of your heart. And so if you're going to go this direction, I'm going to come against it because I know where it ends up. And so he initiates a war with his words. That's what he says. I'm going to come against them with the sword of my mouth. You might say, words? That's all he's going to do? Words? Listen to these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, even ones that are not yet born. That they are endowed by their creator with certain and unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, I think you know what I'm reading. This is the Declaration of Independence. And let me tell you, when the King of England received this declaration, this war of words, war initiated. And let me tell you something about our forefathers. When they wrote the power of this written word and sent it to the king and initiated with the war of words, they were willing to fight unto the death to give the United States of America their freedom. The war of words. 
So Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm coming against you with the word of my mouth because it's powerful, and I'm going to initiate war until I have victory, and our faith is the victory. Well, these guys were getting up, and they were preaching about Balaam. Now, let me explain spiritually what he's talking about. It's in Numbers chapter 22 and Numbers 31. You could look it up later. Josephus, the, the historian of Jewish antiquities, he writes a whole chapter about Balaam. So let me tell you what happened. Children of Israel come into the promised land. King of Midian sees them and goes, oh my, this is a lot of people. We got to do something. Um, let me go get a prophet of God and let him curse them. Because that's what we do. We curse people around here. So I'm going to send 100 bucks to Balaam, and I want Balaam to curse the people for 100 bucks. Balaam goes, listen, I went to God. I'm not doing it for 100 bucks. He said no. So Balak, the king, he sends 200 bucks, and he says, listen, I got 200 bucks here. I need you to curse the people for me. He goes, I'm not doing it for 200 bucks. There's no way. God told me, no, I'm not doing it for 200 bucks. He sends a third. He sends 500 bucks. 500 bucks. Balaam goes, I'm not doing it for 500. God told me no. He sends a million bucks. All right, I'll think about it. Let me think about a million bucks. I can do a lot for God with a million bucks, so let me just think about this a little bit. So he, God says to him, listen, you keep coming to me with this. I'm going to let you go. You just go ahead and go. See what happens. On his way, he's on his little donkey, Eeyore, Eeyore, right? He's on his little donkey. You know the story. He's in a little alley, and the donkey stops. So Balaam hits him in the back, and the donkey goes, Eeyore, like, what are you doing, right? Okay, then the donkey runs him into the wall. Balaam begins to beat him. Then the donkey turns and says, why are you beating me? If I was walking my dog, and Baloo turned around and said, why are you pulling on my leash? What amazes me about this story is that Balaam spoke back to the donkey. I would go, I'm nuts. I need to be on medication. My dog's speaking to me. Balaam goes, I'm beating you because you keep acting like this. He's in an argument with a donkey. And finally, his eyes are opened, and he sees that his donkey is trying to save his life. There's an angel with a sword of fire, and he's going to deal with Balaam because Balaam is going to teach them to compromise. So Balaam goes, listen, I can't do it, Balaam. I can't do it. But the million bucks is kind of tempting me a little bit. I'm a little greedy. So here's the deal. I can't curse them because God won't let me. (laughs) Angel, flaming sword, whole deal, donkey, talk to me, big deal, okay? So I can't do the curse thing. But here's what I'll tell you. God gets very upset with the Israelites. Well, let me tell you how. You got pretty women in your little town. Send those women into the Israelites and let them do their wares, okay? And let them go in and marry amongst the Jews. Well, when they do that, God will get upset with them, and then there'll be trouble for them. So I want you to take the world, and I want you to put it into the word, and I want you to marry the two. I want you to do a pergamum between the two. And I want the world to marry into the word so that, well, compromise can ensue so that well, the Israelites will be done for because God will get upset with them. And that's what he's saying here. There were people from the pulpit teaching something other than the word, and they were teaching the way of the world. The Nicolaitans were no different. 
I told you last week, some of them were those that, some believed that they were those that created the hierarchy in the church. I told you, don't call me pastor anymore. It's kind of one of those things where there's the Pope and the people, and there's the hierarchy, and then there's the not. And, and, and some people believe that Jesus, well, he just hates that because he wants the first to be last and the last to be first. Some believe that the Nicolaitans were those that, well, they were licentious. And that word means that they, they were allowing the opportunity of the way of the world in the church because we're so free in Christ, we can do anything we want. We can go out and do this, and we can go out and do that. I mean, it doesn't matter. Jesus has freed us, right? So we can just do whatever we want, right? What amazes me, to the church of Ephesus, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But now, two churches later, they're allowing the Nicolaitans to teach from their pulpit. Just a few, and now it's getting bigger. The compromise is growing. Gang, why do we compromise? Why do we compromise our faith? Why, why do we go this way? Why does Jesus have to say, listen, i got to deal with this thing. i got to come against it because you don't know where it's headed. I'll tell you why. Because the enemy begins to tickle our flesh. It's not really bad. Just give it a try. Everyone's doing it. It's the way of the world. Just go for it. You can do it. Don't, don't, I mean, come on. It's not a big deal. Are you kidding me? You'll never get caught. It's on your phone. I mean, no worries about it. Don't even think about it. And your flesh begins to get tickled. And then you begin to ponder the possibilities. And then all of a sudden, you're tempted and you see this immediate gratification. Well, I just did it once. Well, now I just did it twice. Well, I just did it now three times, four times. And all the while, you're becoming completely engrossed in it, believing the lie that you've only done it once or twice. Compromise. Compromise. Now, you let your mind go wherever it needs to in regard to whatever compromise it might be. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus comes against it. He warns and he says, listen, you need to repent. you got to repent of compromise. That's what he did with Balaam and the angel with the flaming sword. Stop, Balaam. Don't go this route. And this isn't the first time that Jesus would warn of compromise. In 2 Peter, same thing. Don't go the way of the doctrine of the Balaam. Same thing in Jude, verse 11. Don't go the doctrine of Balaam. Don't choose to compromise. But battle, and battle with the sword of my mouth. Because he knows compromise. Compromise leads to destruction. Let me finish the story. Balaam, he actually moved in to the Midian town. You can catch the rest of the story in Numbers 31. He was the prophet of God. But he's living in compromise. And God told Moses, go into the town and destroy the Midianites. Balaam was living there. And the Bible points out in Numbers 31 that Balaam as well died by the sword. See, the truth of Scripture is this. Jesus knows that compromise leads to destruction. And so he comes against it. He comes against the faithless foe who is bent on destroying our faithful witness. The enemy has been getting us to question the word of God since the very, very beginning. 
That's what he does. You remember Genesis chapter 3. He came to Eve and he said, did God really say? Eve didn't have the written word. Eve didn't have the Holy Bible. So he questioned what God said. Did God really say, no wonder he's given us the written word? Now there's no question. It's permanent. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It's mental. We can learn what's right from wrong. He's given us the written word so that we don't have the excuse that we didn't know. And there's no more room for compromise. Now, gang, I told you he comes against it. And Christ is in battle against compromise. And he wants us to battle against it as well. So he says this, to him who conquers. To him who conquers. So you can see it right there, Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, to the one who conquers. Now, this word conquers, maybe you circle it. It's a present active participle. It means to the one who's conquering. It means to the one who's overcoming, to the one who's prevailing. In other words, what it means is you're actually in the fight. And while you're in the fight, I'm going to give you, what he says, I'm going to give you some hidden manna. Hidden manna. Now remember, this is a Jewish book, and the Jewish people, they understand this manna thing. Manna was the bread from heaven. During the 40 years while the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, God provided food for them with manna that came down from heaven. Well, this manna nourished them. This manna strengthened them. This manna allowed them the opportunity to live in a desert without refrigeration. That's what God did for them. And every day the food was there. The daily bread was given from heaven. Well, Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 6, and he says, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the daily bread that you need. You need to eat from me. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I will strengthen you. And what he's saying, I'll give you the hidden manna. When you're in the fight, I'm going to give you the word. And the word is going to strengthen you and give you the victory. Oh, come on, chat. Really? When I'm in the fight, the word of God's going to help me? we got a proven track record. And Jesus, he sets once again the perfect example. You remember Luke 4. The enemy comes against him. 40 days of fasting, just like the children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days of fasting. There he is in the middle of it on day 20, 30, we don't know. The enemy comes on the scene and says, ha ha, turn that stone to bread. And Jesus looks at him and says, it is written. Gives him the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It silenced the enemy. He could do nothing. He had to go to the next temptation. He couldn't even move. He couldn't even speak. There was nothing said after it. The word of God in the midst of that trial silenced the enemy because it is hidden manna. Now let me describe what that word is. If we are marinating on the word of God, if we're meditating on the word of God, if we're memorizing the word of God, when we're in the midst of our trial, our marinating, our meditating, our memorizing, Jesus is going to speak the word to us in that trial. 
And because we've spent the time in the word, holding fast to it, we're going to be able to hold up in the midst of the trial because he's going to give us the hidden manna, that secret strategic word that defeats the enemy and he's silenced. There's nothing that he can do. Let me give you an example. I told you about that family. The family of the 18-year-old girl, such peace. And when I walked in, the sister, she began to say to me, all of a sudden, as soon as I had this news, I remembered this song. I don't even know where it came from. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me wisdom and show me what to do. God, I look to you. She began to sing the song. And the song is the word of God memorized. That's why we speak songs and spiritual songs to each other. And all of a sudden, God whispers this song into her heart. She shares the song with her mom. Her mom shares the song with the dad. The dad shares the song with the family. Family shares the song with me. And all of us are holding up in the midst of a trial because God whispered the hidden manna straight into the sister's heart. The enemy was silenced. All the anxiety was gone. All the frustration is gone. There was nothing but trust and peace and love because the enemy was defeated. But not only is he going to give you hidden manna, oh, the last thing he's going to give you, the last thing he's going to give you is a white stone with a new name on it. Well, at this point, if you're Jewish, you got the full picture. Take a look at the screen. This point, you got it, okay? So you got manna. And it was there in the wilderness that they got bread from heaven. But also what they got in the wilderness was the law. And within the law, the high priest ordination was given. And what he was to wear and what he was to do. Well, on this high priest was a breastplate. It was called an ephod. And there were 12 stones on it. And on each stone was written one of the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, starting with Reuben and ending with Benjamin. 12 stones. And each stone had a name engraved, written on the stone. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone. Well, if you take a look, now be Jewish. We've got to count the other way. One, two, three, four, five, six. <gasps> a white stone. Look at the bottom picture, a white stone. Well, what is that stone? Well, the word white is the word shiny and the word glittery. Ladies who are married, look at shiny and glittery. It's a diamond. And on that diamond, which is formed with pressure and heat, was written the name Naphtali. Naphtali. That was the name that was written. I need to give you the story. Jacob had four wives. We don't practice it today, but he did. Leah, she just kept having children. One after the next, after the next, after the next. And every time she had a child, <laughs> Rachel, you don't have children. <laughs> Ooh, there's another one. Woo, there's another one. And, and like, she just kept putting out children. She put out four sons. Rachel got sad. In this culture, it's like, I can't believe I'm not having a child. i got to do something. So she goes, marry my maidservant, Bilhah. And I want you to have children with her. Well, she had two children. And the second child was Naphtali. The second child of Bilhah, but the sixth child of Jacob. And there on that white stone, that diamond stone, was the name Naphtali. And let me tell you what Naphtali means. In Genesis chapter 30, we learn it means my struggle. 
It means my strife. And the Jew goes, I got it. As I struggle and strive and hold fast to the word of God in this life and I choose not to compromise, he's going to take off of that stone, Naphtali, my struggle and my strife, and he's going to put on that stone, overcomer, conqueror, prevailer. And he only gives the stone to the one who knows it. That's what he says. In other words, the athlete only gets the gold medal because they're the one that worked out. That's who receives the new stone. So church, here's the warning. The warning is this. In this day and age, compromise is right at our door. We've got to meditate. We've got, excuse me, marinate and meditate and memorize the word of God so that we can be faithful witness and stand against our faithless foe. Because when I get to heaven, I want to hear, hey, give me that stone, my struggle and my strife. I don't know, laser printer or whatever it is. Oh, here's your stone, conqueror. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to wear that for eternity. I pray we all do. Amen.